So I'm writing a novel. Is the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel, from first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this one-man reality show, I'll share with you my ever-evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write, being a writer, and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I'll also answer listener questions and, sometimes, interview people who write fiction. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. Just this past weekend, I took a half-day heroic fantasy writing course. Heroic fantasy is kind of an umbrella term for genres like sword and sorcery or the sword and planet stuff I talked about with you last time. Today, I'll be interviewing the teacher of that course, an author named Howard Andrew Jones. Howard primarily writes beneath the heroic fantasy umbrella, and boy does he know his sword and sorcery. My first encounter with his work was when I picked up an issue of the excellent sword and sorcery magazine he oversees as the editor, Tales from the Magician's Skull. Others might know him from his Pathfinder novels, his Sword and Sandal series following the adventures of Dabir and Asim, his scholarship of arguably the greatest influence on Robert E. Howard's writing style, historical adventure author Harold Lamb, or perhaps you're one of the many people excited for the just-released grand finale of his epic fantasy Ring Sworn Trilogy, When the Goddess Wakes. Well, the publisher calls it epic fantasy, but I have good reason to believe it's really sword and sorcery wearing a fancy disguise. I'll ask Howard about that in this very interview. Hey, maybe I should just cut to that, huh? All right, let's go. And here I am with Howard Andrew Jones. Hello, Howard. Hello, Oliver. It's nice to be here. Yeah, it's good to see you. I guess I only saw you a few days ago at the Heroic Fantasy Writing Class, which I rather enjoyed. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun with that myself. Yeah, and I've got lots of notes to go through, uh, and I've actually got a question about that, but one thing at a time. I have so much I want to ask you. I'm very excited for this. I spent uh, a lot of time on these questions today. I've kind of got that eager student uh, in class uh, situation going on here, so we'll see how that goes. Um, first up, uh, I actually took a bunch of notes uh, before that writing class, all the way last year in October when you were on some panels at the Bride of Cyclops, uh, Cyclops Con that Goodman Games ran. And I just got some stuff here I, I was curious to follow up on with you. Uh, for example, um, in Behind the Scenes with Publishers of Heroic Fiction, that panel, uh, you brought up the importance of reading outside your sort of main genre and taking what you can, you know, using the example of how you read a bunch of westerns you might not normally have been drawn to, and then were able to write much more convincing, like, horses and horse-related scenes, you know, in your own work. I'm wondering, it's been a minute, you know, that was last October, uh, since then, have you picked up any other useful tools from reading outside your usual genres? Well, absolutely. Although I've continued to read in the, um, the same outside genres that I've been doing. So, uh, historical fiction, westerns, which is just a specific flavor of historical fiction, really, and uh, hard-boiled detective fiction. Uh, and I continue to take great pleasure in finding these older books from the 50s that are so lean and mean and propulsive. So much is conveyed about backstory over the course of the story rather than front-loading it at the beginning, which seems to seems to be um, favored by a lot of modern fantasy writers. Uh, you provide a whole bunch of backstory up front, and then, to me, how can I say this? Well, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> I prefer the action to get moving right away, to get hooked inside, 
And I like to see if you're going to have a complex backstory, have it come out naturally rather than just have it dropped into the reader's lap. And then the reader's supposed to say, oh, well, this is just the part where I learned the info dump. I guess that's okay. Well, actually, older writers knew how to do that skillfully uh, and work it into their narrative and have it actually be part of the mystery that helps pull you forward. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of that, too. That's definitely a big part of what's uh, really got me into sword and sorcery. And now I'm sort of edging into historical fiction. I started reading Harold Lamb. I picked up the first volume uh, of that series that you, you worked on. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I think there's nothing... I mean, people can like what they like, but certainly... But I, I share something you mentioned uh, at one point, which is a kind of impatience almost, you know? <laughs> I want to I wanna get into it, you know? Let's just, let's just let's get into that story. Um, okay, so um, in that same panel, you said... That given your options, because I mean, there's what you want to do and there's what publishers want to put out, right? But given your options, you know, you would prefer to maybe write books more around the 50,000 to 60,000 word length, less so the kind of, you know, 100, 120, 150, you know, sort of longer uh, phone books that are more maybe in fashion and with contemporary uh, fantasy. I'm just curious, have, again, this was last October, um, have you got any plans for something that length? And, or, or, you know, both in the sense of the story you would tell and how it, you would get out into the world? Well, yes and no. I mean, it's interesting to me. I felt like a 140,000, 150,000 word book felt long to me. Um, and it took me a while to figure out how to write one that was longer than 90,000. And because I didn't want it to feel padded, I want to keep the pacing but make it a longer book. And so it took me a little bit of extra time to figure out how to keep up that pacing. But anyway, so when I did write a couple of, actually three now, 120 to 140,000 word novels. There's some people that said that, well, these are very short novels for modern fantasy. So um, <laughs> I, I don't know what I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that because I. Yeah, how do you win? <laughs> yeah, I'm not really interested in, in writing too much longer than this. Uh, it would take me years to finish anything. That said, I am working on a um, secret project, and uh, I think it is going to be longer. But I'm using some sneaky techniques to get it that way without padding. Yeah, I'm, I'm really, I'm really having an awful lot of fun with it. Well, I'll be curious to see what that is because I think it's an interesting challenge. I mean, you know, if you keep up the pace of like a really tight five thousand word short story over the course of one hundred and twenty thousand or more words, it could almost be exhausting. You know, I think about, uh, I guess I'm going to movies. Did you see the film Uncut Gems with Adam Sandler? I, I have not actually. I, I haven't been watching as much media lately. Oh, fair enough. Um, well, I, I, the reason I mention it is just because uh, you don't even need to know the story. It's just a sort of infamous for being like an anxiety attack in movie form. What an endorsement, right? But but it's that thing of where every single scene it feels almost as intense as like the showdown at the end of the third act of most other movies. And it's kind of exhilarating until you get to about three quarters of, for me anyway, three quarters of the way through a movie and you're just like, oh my god, my adrenaline gland is completely empty. <laughs> and I and I want, I guess I'm thinking about that in terms of, of uh, let's just say, maintaining the sort of quick pounding pace uh, over the course of a longer novel. And like, that wouldn't be a challenge, right? It's, it's almost exhausting the reader having to find a, a rhythm where they can get like at least a bit of a lull hiller here and there. I don't know, what do you think? It definitely is. Um... I think the problem with a lot of the very large novels is that they do feel padded, they do seem strung out, and they seem, I guess Wheel of Time is, is one of the famous examples, where some people feel that by the time you get to the fourth or fifth book, it's just being drawn out deliberately to make it longer rather than to actually maintain momentum. If a story can't be told in short enough space, one wonders why some of it wasn't left on the edge in the room floor. But 
some people really do want to immerse themselves. Uh, I prefer, well, so for instance, I know that you're working on a serial novel. Mm-hmm. I'm also working on the, the Secret Project as a serial novel. And my sense is that while for a long time I would have thought that that would not have uh, had much appeal, I think today people are used to the concept. I'm hoping that publishers won't be as close to the notion anymore. They're used to it because they're seeing episodic TV where each episode builds off the one before and then it reaches a season climate. And we've also seen recent publishing successes like The Witcher. Now, The, the Witcher, of course, has that game base behind it, which helped. But let's not forget that the first two Witcher collections are collections of short stories. And Sword and Sorcery does lend itself to the short structure because that's where it came from. And if you're going to duplicate and aim for that feel of that uh, grab you from the front and keep you moving, short stories that are arranged in episodic fashion are definitely a good way to go. Yeah, and, and it's it's so enticing to try and, you know, like with my, I'll only speak for myself here, but maybe you'll, you'll sympathize. It is, uh, as someone who's come in well after the Golden Age and the Renaissance and the Silver Age and even the, the boom and bust of the 80s and so on of sword and sorcery has all happened, to look back and read through either people who um, planned out their short stories as one big saga or strung them together usually, like, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, it's a 50-50 chance, Liber? Yeah, that's right. Liber. Oh, thank God. He didn't like it to be, he did not like it uh, when people pronounced it wrong, said like either. So, okay, library, yes. But yes, I uh, like Fritz Library with the Fafford and Grey Monster novels, or, you know, how um, Howard did not plan it that way, but there was the, the infamous Lancer uh, paperback series from the you 60s and 70s. You meant it to sound more like uh, people sitting down uh, and hearing an occasional story from the life of Conan, whatever mm-hmm. it felt like, sort of like whatever the storyteller around the fire felt like telling at the time. Maybe it's a story from his young days as a thief. Maybe it's a days from when he was king. I think the only one of those foundational writers who deliberately wrote everything sort of planned out and in sequence would be Vance, because Liber sort of skipped around and, and imposed chronology later. I believe uh, Michael Moorcock, of course, he comes later than some of the other foundational ones, but I believe even he continued to sort of mess with the chronology of Elric, whereas the Kujil, the clever stories, were written in order, in sequence, and then collected. I know the second one was written in, in some of the short stories were published separately, and then they were collected. can't recall if the first one was handled the same way, but it's an episodic serial novel that functions perfectly well as a novel because it builds towards something. Yeah, no, I remember when I got to the end of the uh, the second part of that, Hugel Saga, right, the third book of the Dark uh, Dying Earth series, and it was so neat because you could pull any of those short stories out and enjoy them. Just, you know, oh, he's a scoundrel. You get it pretty quickly. <laughs> I know he's a scoundrel in a possibly old weird world. And yet reading them in sequence was very rewarding. You know, I was mostly laughing all the way through that because it is a very funny series. But when it got to the end, near the end, those last seven pages, I felt so tense, so incredibly tense. And I would never have felt that way if I hadn't been reading the whole thing in sequence. So I, I kind of love that because to me, it's having the best of both worlds. Worlds, and that's what I'm hoping for with my uh, serialized novel. Where, yeah, you can just, you know, you can dive in like a box of chocolates and pick out any given story and have a good time. But you are rewarded. Like you're not punished if you do that, but you're rewarded if you read it in sequence. I think it's wonderfully rewarding exercise because the writer has to make sure the writer has to play by certain rules that each one can stand alone, but they are more interesting and they build if you read them one after the other. Of course, you have to do things like not repeat the same plot elements over and over. 
You've got to show some character changes. You've got to have some recurring situations. I like some of the Brack stories, but some of the Brack stories tend to repeat themselves. And so something I'm conscious of, okay, I don't want the same kind of monster to keep turning up. Or I don't want them to, if there is a monster, and not to say there's a monster every night, but, uh, then they can't defeat it in the same way. An old friend of mine, when he would run uh, Dungeons & Dragons adventures, or actually any kind of role-playing adventure, the villain would inevitably be involved with mind control. I mean, that was the go-to thing. And so I try to be aware as a writer, okay, what's my go-to thing? Let's not go to it again this time, right? Yeah, I was almost worried because um, my protagonist in this serialized novel, uh, I mean, I already said in the podcast, so why not? You know, she's sort of a big Rosie the River type woman with a warhammer that she'll quite happily club you with. And I had to be very careful to write her personality as being very different from the character in my first novel, which is like a horror novel set in contemporary sort of near future. But it's about a young woman who kind of gets overwhelmed by uh, financial precarity and how there seems to be no consequences for the financial types who cause things like the collapse of 2008. And she puts on a costume and starts murdering them. And so she's going around solving problems with violence. And I'm kind of like, and using even like improvised like weapons she finds on her job at a junkyard. And I'm just thinking, okay, I got to be careful here. <laughs> like if I have a if I have a story with my fan, you know sort of sorcery character, and she's like, oh, I really hate these uh, merchants and uh, how they mess around. The, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? It's, it, you can you, you can have these like almost like um, in my case it sounds like a grudge, but uh, you can have these these sort of things you can just lean into almost reflexively because they come out of your personal beliefs or your you know preferences. As a writer. You have to be careful that you're not constantly hitting the same nail over and over. Uh, and I'm sure that you've read writers that you like, even who do that. They keep coming back to the same thing over and over. John McDonald was brilliant, but he was so into preserving Florida, not that there's anything wrong with that, but it kept coming up in every single one of his hardboiled thrillers. It's like, okay, here's the bit where he gets in a soapbox and complains about environmental degradation. And, you know, you read that enough times, you're like, wow, I wish you could work this in a little bit more smoothly rather than... Well, funny enough, you mentioned that. It kind of gets me to my next question, where uh, I'm still thinking about those panels. They really stuck with me. Um, <laughs> if you don't mind, it feels like I'm living in October of last year, but whatever. Um, in the Best of Sword and Sorcery in the 20th Century panel, Bill Ward described the genre as an unsentimental pulp thing. You know, the pace has to move. It's intimate, personal. People feel incredibly significant, not insignificant, in the face of cosmic horror as they face it and come out the other side. Then you agreed and added something that this is really what stuck in my brain. You said, you know, yeah, accept the horror, but fight anyway. Accept the horror, but fight anyway. I love that as a way of summing up what Bill was saying. And it feels to me like a very almost empowering slogan, you know, one that could be applied to all kinds of activism, wrestling with big, almost like existential world issues as much as sword and sorcery's protagonists. You know, meanwhile, a lot of people I suspect, you know, assume that the genre is all surface, just about blood and guts, wizards and chainmail bikinis, right? And how, you know, you're, I imagine, familiar with how in one of his bombastic introductions to the Lancer Conan paperbacks, Lynn Carter advertised a lack of substance as an incentive to read the stories within, you know? Don't have to think about, you know, the, the whatever, it's all these dated issues, like the taxes or, you know, I think he was perhaps missing some of the themes in the original Howard stories. So my question, with the big preamble here, do you think there's room for social issues and commentary in sword and sorcery and is that ever on your mind while creating your own stories oh absolutely absolutely there's room for it even if it comes down to the the message simply being that we need to inspire bravery to fight the thing in the dark or to find the strength to save our family or overcome the tribe's dread horror sword and sorcery stories were those things that gave us courage around the campfire yes 
I definitely think you can have messaging fiction. I would prefer it not to be, to, again, hit you over the head with the message kind of thing. But yeah, there's all kinds of possible subtlety that, that could be used. And, and I do try to employ it. No one yet has accused me of um, standing and going, being in a, beating a drum about the little things that I do. But I hope people will see me there. I think it's perfectly possible to do it. I, I feel badly that Lynn was saying those things back in the day. I have a lot of respect for him as an editor. I do like some mm. of his writing as well. As an editor, he was he was very good. And I think he was trying to, back in the day, say, hey, look, with this, you can escape and enjoy yourself. Rather than reading, I think it was more of an outcry against literary fiction rather than saying sword sorcery has no depth. And unfortunately, that's not as clear in reading now that that's what he was really about. Yes, he liked the lighter stuff. He loved Burroughs. I don't know that there's too much political depth with Burroughs, but it's cracking good pacing, right? It sweeps you away into action and adventure, and that's what he that's what he loved. Yeah, no, it's possible maybe I get hung up on some of the sort of, to me, amusing datedness. Like, he literally says, you won't have to think about Spiro Agnew, and I'm like, I wasn't. Uh, <laughs> you know? uh, uh, yeah, don't worry, man. But uh, yeah, I, I just remember that intro really, really caught me, and I was like, oh, it's, it's, it did feel, that, at least to me, on my first reading, without, you know, as I was still learning about him, it was an odd promise to make, because I don't think you have to work a political issue, like, you know, specifically, like, some sort of, I don't know, vote no on Prop 75 or whatever into your stories. But I think they should always be saying something, you know, whether or not it directly ties to a hot button issue. Well, they can be saying something about the human condition, even if it's not a hot button yeah. issue. Or they can, or they can be merely entertaining. But I think good writing can say something about the human condition, even if it's just I'm putting air quotes an adventure story. Hmm. Yeah, I guess it's this thing where it's not so much I'm trying to um, sort of shove politics into my sword and sorcery, more that I think it's a false choice. I think you can have substance and style, heaven forbid. <laughs> you know, you can have a story that really says something, as you say, whether it's about something more particular to do with power structures between people, which I feel you get a lot of in the Lankmar stories, or uh, something more about the human condition, which is maybe more, you know, Howard's jam. Okay, so meanwhile, there's an aspect of sword and sorcery that I don't think maybe is discussed enough. And I would love for you to share your thoughts on. And now, uh, re-enchanting the world is how I heard it described in that best of 20th century panel. Over in the Tales of the Magician's Skull submission guidelines from earlier this year, one thing it was made clear you were looking for was a sense of wonder, not hopelessness, lost cities and gleaming treasure and forgotten lands. In a nutshell, I think there's actually, you know, an incredible positivity in this genre. It's not grimdark, you know, I think there's like an empowering, almost life-affirming feel to the whole thing that I think people are really craving right now while living through this exciting chapter of a history book that we're all enjoying. So please, I'm wondering, could you maybe tell us a bit about how you interpret trying to convey, you know, a sense of wonder, of re-enchanting the world, not hopelessness or any of that stuff, uh, that this genre can bring to the table? Like, how can sword and sorcery do that? How does it do that? Well, I think if you're going for a sense of wonder, first, take me to wonderful places. Take me to amazing vistas that it would take two special effects guys a couple of weeks to put together, but that you can describe on a, an old Underwood typewriter while sitting in your parents' house. That's what I want. I, I want to be transported. I want to see splendors as well as horrors. I don't just want to see terrible people doing terrible things. I want to see some of that, but I also want to see people overcoming challenges. I want to see scenes of uh, splendor and heroism. And it also depends upon presentation. There's a great line in a, in a minor Harold Lamb's where 
man is witnessing someone flying down the face of the mountain. And after you read it, it looks to him like it's magic. But as a modern reader, you realize, wait a second, that guy's on skis. <laughs> if you put yourself in the position of people from different times and different cultures, some of the things that we take for granted are seen as incredible and are seen as magic. So as always, if you're working on it as a writer, you have to put yourself in the place of the people who are there. And then some of the things that we might take to become more wondrous and special. I think that's a great answer. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, it's just one aspect of it that I really like and has definitely been a big part of why I've dived heavy into Sword and Sorcery over the last couple of years. You know, I just, uh, I, I, it feels downright uplifting. It makes the world feel bigger and more exciting as much as it's also sometimes largely cosmic and terrifying if, say, you're reading Tower of the Elephant and, you know, we all know what happens in that story. And for those of you who don't, it's a very short, easily found story online for free, Gutenberg Press. It's one of the greatest Sword and Sorcery ones, tales, and if you read it, already out Tower of the Elephant. And we should both make clear that while there is some excellent sword and sorcery that is incredibly entertaining, there's, of course, lots of dreck as well. So not, neither of us are blindly endorsing all sword and sorcery. Yeah, it's true. I love it to pieces, but... <laughs> Like anything, especially something anything that had a period where it was very much being written to pay the bills. You know, you can tell sometimes when you're reading a story where someone just needed to make the rent that month, perhaps. Right. And sometimes there's people who just want to focus on the surface aspects of it. For instance, uh, there's nothing wrong with a big, bright comic book sometimes where it's just two mutants beating the heck out of each other. Well, sometimes some sort of sorcery is a little bit like that. I don't know that I'd want a steady diet of that every story I read, but uh, that kind of sword and sorcery is fun too. Oh yeah, no, I, 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 as much, I, as much as I kind of, I don't say make fun, I kind of pull on Lane Carter's pigtails a little bit uh, <laughs> uh, in terms of his writing, his editing. I should be so lucky, my God, uh, to have that career. But, uh, but I, I do that, and yet. And yet, I mean, I could, you know, if I wanted to, I could kind of wiggle out of it with the uh, Lancer uh, paperbacks. Oh, I'm studying Conan. But I also, like, nobody put a gun to my head and made me buy, uh, I've got four. I'm trying to find the other two that remain of his um, World's End series. The one about the sort of big He-Man, like, bimbo who's, like, intellectually 10 years old and he's an android and he just pops out of a mountain into this insane pastiche of like many different kinds of worlds and settings and just has insane adventures with flying cities and giant red women that want him to sleep with them <laughs> it's never been one of my favorites if you want to read some of them that is best uh lost world of time i think most of us consider his very best and that's a mm -hmm. fine short sword and sorcery novel if he'd written more like that i think he'd be more discussed uh, there's that, there's Calorie the Warlock, uh, and Doggone, I can't remember what the third one that I really liked is. They have sort of similar sounding vibes, right? But then he also has some excellent short stories. There's one of his uh, Lord Dunsany pastiches that I think is, is just phenomenal. It's based on the Sword of Weller, right? He kind of steals the plot beats from the Sword of Weller, but uh, the story's called Zingazar. Zingazar, <laughs> yeah, I know. The name of the sword. And it's, it's just marvelous. I think it's a minor masterpiece, and more people ought to read it. That's Lynn Carter doing his very best. And this probably sounds like heresy, but he takes... Dunsany was a genius, okay? Lord Dunsany mm -hmm. was a genius. This is the one time where I think someone took the plot beats that Lord Dunsany hit and actually wrote a better story. That's a bold claim. Really excellent trickster. Cool. All right. So um, your, your, your guy, your serialized protagonist in Tales is Hanivar Cabrera, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, a kind of a living legend wandering the earth and fighting for the survivors of his conquered but not vanquished 
people. I was a fair summary. His uh, story in Tales number three was my introduction to your writing, and uh, let me tell you, it got me on board. <laughs> it worked. More recently, I'm happy to see there'll be a new Hanavar story in the upcoming issue, number six uh, of Tales. Now, uh, my question is, uh, as editor, you have the authority to serialize basically whatever, whomever you wanted to, I presume. What made you choose uh, Hanavar, and what are your hopes for his future? That's a complicated question. Um, first off, I'll just go ahead and, and copy the fact, okay, Hanavar is my secret project that I'm working on. Second, the whole Magician Skull thing started because Joseph Goodman contacted me and wanted to know if I had a story that he could include in the Goodman Games yearly book that was released at Gen Con. And I said, yes. And I gave him the first Hanavar story. And he printed that. And then next year he said, hey, do you have another one? And I said, sure, I can write another one. I've got one in mind. And, and then a little bit later, he says, uh, do you know, do you have any other friends uh, who write sword and sorcery? I'm like, of course I do. You know, I'm surrounded by contacts in the industry who love sword and sorcery. And so then a little bit later, he says, I'm thinking of starting a magazine. And then I jumped up and down and threw my hat in the ring and did as many magic tricks as I could to say, I want to please let me edit this. So uh, at that point, there was already another Hanavar story in the mix. And I was the editor. And I felt weird about that. We all know, well, those of us who know Lynn Carter know that he always shoved his work into, <laughs> into his books. And yeah. sometimes he wrote, uh, wrote under a pseudonym so that there were two of his short stories. <laughs> the guy was bold. And I, I didn't want to come off like that. So Goodman said, look, I really like your writing. I would like to see you continue in the magazine. And so I do appear in the magazine, but I'm not in every issue. So there's that. As far as my hopes for Hanavar, I love writing this character. I don't know that I've had as much fun consistently writing a single character possibly ever, or at least not since I was actually in control of my writing. Maybe when I was six, I really enjoyed telling stories about my elephant. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I really want to see Hanavar take off. I'm excited and I want to do a whole series of books about it, starting with the one I'm nearly done with. Okay, well, I, I count me as someone else who wants to see ahead of our takeoff. So, uh, listeners, uh, buy it. <laughs> buy it. Throw, throw money at this man for this book and others. You know, I, I love how in the story from Tales Number 3, which uh, is called The Second Death of Hanavar, and uh, listeners, you can buy physical copies of it. I'll link that in the show notes uh, or PDFs if you prefer that. But yeah, in that story, The Second Death of Hanavar, it's really all about uh, him not only fighting for others, but helping them fight for themselves. And I really like that that. Now, a, an off-sided detail, or when people try to define this genre that I see, is like, well, they have, you know, you can spot a sword and sorcery hero because he's kind of more mercenary, you know, he, he or she, you know, they're, they're more interested in money and, you know, just something to put in their pockets, some food, some glory, uh, less so much uh, helping others necessarily. But I feel, you know, Hanavar is absolutely a sword and sorcery hero, and yet here he is very much trying to, like, help, I uh, say, empower others, empower his lost, conquered people. So, I, I'm assuming the answer is yes, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts at large about it. Can a, a sword and sorcery hero be all about empowering others even though that's a very selfless you know act oh absolutely I, I think that some of those definitions miss the point they're trying to they're focusing in on the wrong elements i try to be broad with how i define sword and sorcery as a matter of fact with the help of other people you can i wrote the definition that's on the tales from the magician skull website i don't happen to have that sitting here and it's really long i don't have it memorized word for word but that'll discuss where i think the borderlines are yeah absolutely i think there's room for more heroic action. 
Okay, so riffing off of what you just said, what have been your experiences uh, as both writer and editor in trying to walk along that sweet spot where you aren't being so dogmatic about what sword and sorcery is, that the only thing allowed are pastiches or clones of works by the original masters, but also not going, you know, playing so loose and easy with what qualifies that it just sort of becomes an undefined mess. How do you hew as a writer or editor into like the perfect middle, as it were, or try your best to hit that perfect middle? Honestly, as an editor, I haven't found it that difficult. We try to be welcoming of people who draw from the old well uh, based on sound storytelling principles and creating wonder, but aren't trying to just do the same thing, not creating the same characters and putting them in slightly different situations. We're trying to get people who want to tell similar kinds of stories based in the same traditions, but we don't want to sell, tell the exact same story. And I haven't had too much trouble. I mean, the ones that feel too much like they're just a carbon copy aren't the ones that I get excited about and, and want to accept. Because unfortunately, when people are copying something, they're not copying all of it. They're only seeing one aspect that really appeals to them and they're fast on that. And for instance, when I used to read Slush for Black Gate back when it was a physical magazine, I could tell someone who'd been reading Lovecraft because they wouldn't necessarily be going for the same kind of cosmic horror. They would be going for his smile. And unfortunately, Lovecraft could frequently be turgid. Yep. <laughs> right? Hard to suck down. And the same thing can happen with some of these sword and sorcery stories in a similar way. It's see some aspect that someone is focused on. That is a natural thing that happens in the process of learning how to find your own voice. Because God knows I used to do that my own self. I'm not denigrating people for doing that. It's part of the process. You've got to experiment and figure out what other people are doing before you can find out how you want to do what you want to do. Oh, absolutely. A lot of my early short stories that nobody's allowed to see, uh, you know, it's you can see someone doing a bad imitation of Hunter S. Thompson. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. So, I, no, I, I haven't found too much of a... Uh, I haven't found any problem with it. And once I've found my own voice, I haven't had any trouble finding it as a writer. So, yeah. Okay. Um, still hanging on genre a little bit, just a little bit longer here. Um, I'm curious, I listened to your interview from back in, uh, I want to say April or May, spring, uh, with Rogues of the House. Great, lovely podcast listeners, if you're not familiar, if you like Sword and Sorcery, check it out. And in that interview, uh, near the end, you were saying how your brand new book, which will be linked to in the show notes, everybody, check it out. <laughs> Finishing the Ringsworn trilogy here. I'm curious, you, you sort of mentioned at the end how it's, it's sort of um, promoted as epic fantasy. But you kind of had, like, you could almost hear the sly smile over the podcast, and you were like, well, but, you know, really, I, I took I took a sword and sorcery story, and I, I put the epic fantasy's boots on it. I'm curious, like, would you still stand by that description? I know it's a few months later, but uh, would you say? Absolutely. Well, the, the trick is, so there's problems. Publishers don't want to refer to things as sword and sorcery because there was a backlash against it. For a while there, there were so many terrible Conan knockoffs and bad sword and sorcery movies that for a long time there, people thought that sword and sorcery meant that you had to have a barbarian in a fur diaper and a damsel in distress who was useless except for looking sexy. And um, if you describe something as sword and sorcery, they assume that's what your fiction was. And so they began to look for other ways to describe it. And now, of course, the term is so confused. I was just on Reddit earlier today trying to explain the difference between that and high fantasy with a very intelligent person who'd never understood, who'd never read enough to see it. And part of that, it's just gotten muddy. For a long time, uh, role-playing games have been described as sword and sorcery. Well, kind of, 
but then people get used to seeing like game fiction and gaming referred to as sword and sorcery, and they think that that means that it has an elf and a wizard and a hobbit in it, and that means it's sword and sorcery. It's so confusing. Anyway, if you follow what I how I define sword and sorcery, then I think that my Ringsworn trilogy is sword and sorcery, albeit it has much more of a Roger Zelazny feel than it has a Roger. Howard feel, where you've got these super-powered characters who are interacting and they're uncovering intrigue about the way the world works, and there's plots and counterplots and uh, all kinds of uh, sword play that's different from the, the more typical Howardian sword play, which I do love. I'm just saying that there's more of a, there's a slightly different feel to the Zelazny sword play. So, yes, I definitely stand by this being sword and sorcery albeit it's another distinct flavor of sword and sorcery rather than some that people assume it is. There you go. Okay, so a name you mentioned a few times there in your answer was uh, Zelazny. I have been doing this podcast from the point of view that people who are listening maybe are coming in cold. And I've mentioned, you know, Howard and Liber and Moorcock and other names quite a few times, but I've never mentioned Zelazny, and I know he's very important to you. Would you mind sort of just telling our listeners a little bit about why they might want to check him out and what he means to you? Sure. Well, Zelazny and Liber were the first true fantasy writers that I ever read. Uh, you could count The Hobbit because my mom read it to me when I was six, but let's not because that was more I imbibed it along with a whole bunch of other stuff. This I actively sought out. I got the appendix in back of Dungeon Master's Guide and I went to the library and the used bookstore and the bookstore and I tried to find these books and I found Liber's Swords Against Death, which was I, I still think is the the best of all the Clonkmar collections. And then friends were reading the Chronicles of Amber. And it, this must have been around 77, 78. And I believe they were all out at that point. And my God, it blew the doors off my imagination. It starts simply enough with a man waking up in a hospital bed under sedation and not knowing exactly who he is, but realizing maybe he's not here under his own willpower and maybe, maybe he ought to get out. Well, we soon find out that he was, he's Corwin of Amber, the one true city, the one from the one true world. All other realities are shadow, are shadows cast by Amber. So it's this whole parallel world thing. He's this mighty individual, but he has these scheming brothers and sisters. And he goes out trying first to recover his memory and figure out what's going on. And then pretty soon it seems like it's going to be a revenge story to find the brothers and sisters who boon onto this onto our earth, which is just a shadow. But then pretty soon it becomes much more than a simple tale of vengeance because there's also the kingdoms threatened, people get framed for things maybe they didn't commit, there's a traitor somewhere out there. It just spins all these wonderful threads. And the more you understand about the world and come to care about it, the more realize that their own understanding of the world isn't even fully formed, that there's secrets within secrets within secrets. <laughs> it's just delightful. And it's all, all the books were short. Remember, this was in the, it could be that the earliest one was written in the late, very late 60s, but they were all done by the 70s. So we're talking about shorter novels, talking more, no more than 40 to 70,000 words, probably more like 60. You could probably collect all five of the original books in one book the size of Wheel of Times. Maybe it's shorter than one volume of Wheel of Time. It's <laughs> so much more story. It's so satisfying. It pulls you forward. It has this real, it alternates between gumshoe prose and, and just this lyrical word punch. It's usually sold now as the big book of Amber. And some years after the first five novels, he came back in with five more. 
the majority of Amber fans would probably tell you the five sequel novels are inferior. They're not narrated by Corwin. Some people still get a charge out of them. I, I was disappointed. Just, just, just a heads up that really the thing that delighted me were those first five. Well, yeah, each of their own. I'm curious, how uh, would you say uh, Zlazny and, and that series impacted your own writing? Well, Amber itself had a huge impact. It especially influenced this particular series. Just as Harold Lansard had an impact. I loved this. So these immortal Amberites have almost superhuman, well, they are superhuman abilities because they're they're sort of like perfect humans, right? And we're all inferior shadows of them. So they'll they're long-lived, pretty much immortal, although they can be killed. Super strong, super quick, incredible healing, all these amazing things. But I loved the astonishingly bizarre world-building and the layers and layers of intrigue. And so you will see those elements in the Wingsworn trilogy. You will see characters, they're not quite as superhuman as, as Amberites are, but they are an elite core of warriors who trained and they do amazing things. Um, some of them have mastered sorcery. There's all kinds of weird world building. There are secrets about the way the world works, and there's people with hidden agendas that come out over the course of the novel. So I loved those particular things from Amber, and I wanted to do similar things to get the same kind of delight that I felt on reading this. I was trying to create that same kind of delight for readers when they came to this one. Well, I like that because I mean, isn't that just the the truth of the matter? You want to try and make when you're writing other people feel the same joys that you felt when you read the stuff that inspired you. I think that's really great. Absolutely. So I, I uh, as I mentioned before, I, I did really enjoy your heroic fantasy writing course. I'm just wondering, do you plan on teaching that class again, or maybe teaching other classes? Yes, I've just signed on to teach it for. Um, I guess it's the upcoming fall session. And I believe I signed up for. Uh, November, some Saturday in mid-November, and I have given thought to teaching some other courses, but it takes a while to put coursework together and design a course, and right now I'm in the middle of working on skull promotions and promoting book three of the trilogy that just came out, and I'm also working really hard to finish this Honor novel, and the thought of trying to design another course or two, I know my head would explode. <laughs> yeah, fair enough, fair enough. If people are interested in taking your heroic fantasy uh, writing course, which I'll say right now, I recommend, I, I loved it, how would they find out? You know, I got lucky, I think I saw the Goodman Games post about your uh, class, I, I just got in there before it filled up, which was like the same day, I believe. You know, if, if people want to keep an eye out and be able to get in under the wire, how would they best do that? Well, they can go to themuse.org. It's not through Goodman Games, and it's not through me, it's, it's by a wonderful organization on the East Coast offers all sorts of online courses as well as some in-person courses. I do not teach in person since I do not live on the East Coast. Well, that's okay. It worked out. I mean, I'm in Toronto and I got to take your course, so no complaints. Uh, you know, I know a lot of people have kind of Zoom exhaustion, but taking that class was not the same thing as having a meeting with your boss and five coworkers. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, cool. I'm glad you're going to be doing more. Uh, I, I Selfishly, I would say I would love to have a class where you deconstruct the pros of Liber. You know, I feel like there's a lot of um, stuff out there on, like, you know, Howard's muscular adverbs and so forth, um, and, and great. But I, I don't see quite as much about uh, the actual, like, sentence construction, almost, uh, of, of Liber. I've seen some uh, plenty on his themes uh, and his character. But yeah, I, he's someone that's really on my mind right now because he's definitely, his Langmar stories are, you know, definitely the primary influence on the stories I'm getting into. I'm getting into sort of the second act of my book and, and I want to have a City of Thieves and certain things like that. And I'm thinking of Langmar. And I, uh, I I know my weakness, I've mentioned before in the show, is, is kind of also my strength. I mean, I, I'm impatient, which I feel is almost a strength because it means like, it, you know, if I want to write something, I just freaking do it. But it also makes it hard 
harder for me to focus on like following the you know the specifics of the mechanics of the prose as opposed to say the character and plot theme, which I feel like I'm pretty good at picking up on. That's something to fix in revision, though, right? You get it all down, and then you come back and add in those other details. That's nothing to slow you down. Impatience is a virtue when you're writing story and stories. I I'm gonna put that on my on my wall or about my computer because that's uh, that's good. <laughs> Impatience is a virtue when writing sword and sorcery. That's like oh thank you. So something else actually uh, that came up in the course and I believe you've said this elsewhere. You know you've you described sword and sorcery often in cinematic terms. You did it earlier in this interview I believe. Um, usually regarding say camera moves as metaphor for the focus of the prose. Right. We in the class we talked about like you know starting in those tight focus lens or, or you know zooming out to like a master shot that kind of thing. With the bias of my mainly being a screenwriter, I completely agree. <laughs> <laughs> was seeing it through this lens. But man, you know, I'm wondering, like, given that, given it, that it is just so cinematic, just as always, this is an opinion, I don't expect an empirical truth here, but I'm wondering, you know, why the heck aren't there more than, like, one or two good sword and sorcery films? You know, what do you think is going on there? Why don't we have more great adaptations? Why are we still going back to 1982 Conan? <laughs> Which is great, but man, you know, it was, it was 39 years ago. Well, I don't know what to tell you, except that so often the wrong people get involved in making them. They insisted on having an origin story when they tried to do the Solomon Kane. They insisted on having an origin story when they tried to reboot Conan. And it's the people who get involved in it don't understand the source material. Source material isn't about origin stories. It's not, we're going to follow this epic fantasy character from when he's born on up to get his background. No, it's an old style story where the detective walks onto the screen, your hard-willed detective walks on screen, and we know all we need to know about him by seeing him in action. That's the way Sword and Sorcery needs to be handled because it is hard-boiled. It comes. It was born from the same time period, has a lot of the same same sound, honestly. So it's not film. The people who come to put it on the screen think that they're going to film a fantasy story. But what they're really doing is they need to be thinking about a hard-boiled story and approach it that way. The characters feel fully formed, um, there may be a character arc, but it's not a journey where the character is coming into his own or his own power. The character's got that power right from the start. And the audience really doesn't need to give a crap about that because that's not what it's about. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. And, and, I, and you know, the seductive pull of the origin story, eh? I mean, think about how many times we've been told, you know, Batman or Spider-Man's origin story in the last 20 years, or even like to come back to the library, you know, I think about how there's definitely pleasures to be had in the individual origin stories that he like later wrote when he decided he wanted to knit all of his short stories into a grand narrative, the individual origins for Fafford and then Grey Mouser. But I don't think you would find any fans of those guys who wouldn't tell you that really it gets started with Ilmet and Lankmar, uh, the chronological third story where the two guys meet, because that's where the story starts. I don't, I'm not even as big a fan of that one as I am some of the earlier stuff. But yeah, those the two that are written about their backgrounds. You know, a lot of people tell me that they stop after the first novel that they don't that they weren't that impressed. I'm like, yeah, I get it. I'm so lucky that I that the used bookstore only had book two <laughs> because I was I was enraptured. Now maybe I would have kept reading if I started with book one anyway because I was 13, 14. I read a lot more and I was more patient. If I didn't enjoy something. All the way. Sometimes I thought maybe I wasn't clever enough to get it. I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't critical enough to stop. But yeah, yeah. The the origin isn't really that necessary. And he, of course, was being paid to create more lock more content, and so he did. Oh well, yeah. 
I mean, if it's where the story starts, fair enough, right? Like, I really enjoy um, Elric of Melnibony, which was written later, right? It wasn't, it was chronologically set at the beginning, but not the actual first story that Moorcock wrote of Elric. But that's because, like, stuff happens, you know? And it builds his character and sets him up. It's not just like, well, this was his mom and somebody was bullying him. Anyway, you know, <laughs> leap forward 10 years, uh, his village gets raided and now we're off to the races. Yeah, it's that thing of, I guess, it's one of the oldest pieces of writing advice, but it always holds true. Start the story where it starts. And so, listener, if you're coming into this still kind of fresh to sword and sorcery and you're thinking, ah, I, I'm so tired of uh, origin stories being told over and over in these superhero movies or, that I like, check it out, man. It's a good genre <laughs> for getting around that. I will say that actually, actually the Elric novel that he went back and did, the origin story, I actually quite like that. I think that may be mm -hmm. one of the best of the Elric novels. So I have a different feeling about, about the first Elric that he did later as opposed to the first Bofford and Grey Mouser. I want to make clear I'm not advocating, oh, never go back and do an origin story, but only do it if it's going to work. <laughs> yeah, like like it felt like with 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 uh, the Elric one, it's, it it sets up uh, the world in ways that are necessary, and it also really helps you better understand him as he as he moves forward. So, whereas the Fafnir and Grey Mouser origin stories, I found especially Grey Mousers, which was uh, I was just reading, um, I was doing a little bit of scholarship up at the Merrill Collection, I've mentioned a few times uh, there's this archive in Toronto, I was reading Fafford and Me, uh, right, the 1990 book of essays, and he talks about how the Grey Mouser origin story of the Unholy Grail was originally another story just written about some guy yeah, yeah yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, a friend of his was like, why don't you change the title to something a bit cooler, I forget the original title it wasn't great, and make it Grey Mouser and just like add in some mentions of Lankmar being on the horizon <laughs> and so you know, that also may have played a role, but there you go, right? The origin didn't come from a place of necessity. It came from a place of, like, I think I need one, <laughs> you know? I think Fafnir and the Great Mouser trying to have a story of them individually is also, like, listening to the Beatles after they break up. They're greater than the sum of their parts. You get all four of the Beatles together, and it's magical. Now, separate, they can still do some good things, but it's never as awesome. They're greater than some of the parts. Well, Fafnir and the Great Mouser are the same way. They're far more interesting together. And they are part. They're entertaining in that one story where they're they're still in the same story, but they're going in slightly different directions. Uh, Lean Times and Lankmar. That's the funniest one, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the funniest uh, sort and sorcery stories I've written. But yeah, it, they're both still in the story and interacting with each other. In those origin stories, they're not interacting with each other. Yeah, I mean, I'm not. I'm certainly not breaking new ground by saying this, but those guys work by being struck off each other like a pair of flints. If they, yeah, if, they, if they're completely actually separate as opposed to just on either half of the same story, it doesn't right. work. Yeah, so there you go. Right, I mean, the origin has to be of the essence of everything that comes after, and if it's not, then it, you know maybe maybe that's the rule. I don't know. By the way, if I can just be cheeky for a second, uh, I know um, you guys uh, tales have the rights. For Fafnir and Grey Mouser, and are going to have a new story in issue six and more to come, I'm sure. Do y'all have the film and TV rights? No, no. Do you need, do you need a screenwriter? Okay, no, shoot. All right. Well, I was I was going to shoot my shot there, but uh, all right. <laughs> that would be fabulous, but uh, you wouldn't want to hook up uh, to get any screen rights from me because I don't even own a camera anymore. <laughs> Uh, okay, well, I, I yeah, because I, I was just thinking, like, oh, man, I would watch the hell out of that show, you know? And, I mean, a movie would be good, too, but I could, I would just love to see the serialized, uh, you know, or episodic uh, adventures of those guys charging around. I'm surprised so much hasn't happened. I think that we may finally be seeing some Corwin come to the small screen. Excuse me, Conan. I can't believe, I think we're finally going to see some Conan. I can't believe we've never seen Chronicles of Amber in all those years. That we've never mm -hmm. seen, like, three movies made off of it or a TV series. And I can't believe that Elric... I can't believe that Fafnir and the Great Mouser, Jarell of Joyery, there, there's all 
I would love to see her. Cool yeah. characters that we haven't seen that someone could do with. How about Amara? Actually, I, I think this might have been on the Rose in the House podcast. I believe they mentioned at some point they had heard something about uh, an Amara series in the works. Uh, and that some of the casting's actually been happening. And like it's more serious than just the you know discussions are being had. The architecture is being put into place. So fingers crossed that uh, that's true. He's much more of a heroic character. History. We were talking about earlier. Well, he's someone who most swords, most of the famous swords and stories who are here is you would not want to sit down to dinner. Amara was a genuinely good guy. I could just feel for me. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, he's always trying to find community, and it never really works out for too long. <laughs> and so you kind of, yeah, you can't help but feel bad for him, yeah. Uh, and so as as we go in here, uh, I've got uh, last sort of last question, kind of a two-parter. Um, I'm wondering, could you, as a sort of recommendation to our uh, listeners here, could you please choose one sword and sorcery, or, you know, adjacent to sword and sorcery, author, that you think the public at large need to be reading more I'm guessing you're going to say Lee Brackett or Harold Lamb, but I'm open to any answer. You know, who's who's somebody that doesn't get mentioned enough that, that people should check out? Well, you know, there's no one good answer. People think they know Conan, but they haven't really read Robert E. Howard. So, yes, read some Robert E. Howard. Read some Harold Lamb. There's another person whose work could be turned into a wonderful miniseries. The swashbuckling Cossack stories of Harold Lamb are just delightful old Delightful, I say they're old and they are old. I guess all of these stories. But um, they're so cinematic. They're written in 1917 and they are not dull at all. They just thunder forward. He was impatient. It was that impatience is a virtue. And of course, Lee Bracken had wonderful lyrical prose. I think it can be harder for people to get into Lee Bracken because she wrote of a Venus that isn't the nasty sulfuric planet that we know, but, you know, the the Venus that had dinosaurs and swamp. And her Mars is this dying planet that has civilizations on it. It's, it's not a dead planet. It's just a dying one. It still has civilizations and oxygen and all these wonders. And so people have a hard time. It's like, oh, well, that's not real. Well, none of it's real, right? Yeah. <laughs> Let's just imagine Mars is like that. Let's just imagine Venus. She wrote wonderful tales set there. And, of course, the only other problem with Bracket is that she has very few recurring characters. There's really only about four Stark stories that aren't part of her novel series. And one of them is kind of a throwaway she wrote with her husband. So there's really only three uh, Eric John Stark stories apart from the novels. The Eric John Stark stories, I think, are marvelous. But, yeah, she might be harder to get because each one, almost each one has to stand alone. Although the Mars is very, seems like it's the same Mars, and then Venus seems like it's the same Venus. Like, she goes to the same place with different people. Well, fair enough. I mean, the story you had us read for the class uh, really grabbed me, and to the thing of, you know, it being not realistic, you know, Mars, quote-unquote, Mars or Venus, uh, I think, A, I'm not sure if hard sci-fi uh, fanatics are quite as fanatical these days. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they're going to come for me on Twitter. Uh, and, and also, you know, if anybody's listening thinking, oh, yeah, I don't know, if it's Venus with dinosaurs, it sounds kind of kooky. Well, you probably enjoyed The Empire Strikes Back, and Lee Brackett only wrote the first draft of the screenplay for that, so... <laughs> and that was hardly, uh, you know, a hard science. And so, yeah, the other half of this, my last, my last question for you, on the other end of the equation, looking forward, you know, or, or maybe very much to the present, could you choose... I, I know there'll be too many names to choose from, you might feel bad trying to choose one person, so just, like, first thing that bubbles up in your brain, you know? Could you choose a brand new baby sword and sorcerer, or, uh, sorry, sword and sorcery, or sword and sorcery adjacent author? that you'd like us all to check out? Somebody's pretty fresh that you think more people need to be reading. Oh, I think you need to read the authors from Tales from the Magician's Skull. <laughs> That's true. You need to look at a list of, of those guys. And if I only, and gals, if, if I used I used guys in a neutral sense. Right? I gotcha. I think that if you, I dare not just say just one because I'd be 
be leaving all kinds of people behind. So go read that. You'll find Nathan Long and Chris Hawking and Sarah Newton and Violet Milan, Chris Wilrich and Jim Zing and my God, see I'm already beginning to leave people off who I don't want to leave off. Clint Warner, I could go on and on and on. Read the frickin' magazine. It, <laughs> I love these short stories. I spend an awful lot of time pulling them together and making sure that they get into print. Joseph Goodman has done an amazing job with his team and getting it and promoting it, the vision he has for this thing. I'm just so delighted to be working with him. Yeah, no, it must be a dream, man, because like not only is everything I've ever heard about working with Joseph Goodman been extremely positive, but it's this thing of like, you know, sword sorcery, it's, I, I like to think it's 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 reinflating in a way. It's, it's getting bigger and bigger. It's looking more and more in the sense of there being more markets and more readers and more authors, and which is so nice to see after, you know, the sort of deflating in the 80s and 90s. But then you look back to like the golden age and silver age and, and these wonderful magazines, and it feels like you, you are successfully evoking, you know, the weird tales and all that good stuff, all the, all the things where it really began uh, with, ta- with Tales from Magician's Skull. And I, I, as someone who loves reading the old stuff and is the good for fortunate to live near a special archive where I can look at original copies uh, of those old classic pulps. It's so fun to be reading tales and going, yeah, they're nailing it, man. Like, this feels, this this has, this has both the excitement of the new and the evocation of the, of the golden age. That's Joseph's vision, and that's also the skill of the uh, layout, the layout genius, Lester Portland. It's just, uh, he, he's pretty amazing. Yeah, and, and I know Joseph Goodman brings it to it the, also the um, the high quality materials. You know, I remember when I picked it up. I was like, "Holy crap! This is like a proper book that just is in the shape of a magazine." You know, it's really good paper, which sounds a goofy thing to say, but most magazines today, not so much. <laughs> well, you know, the paper has been a blessing and a curse because it's been really hard to get hold of COVID. Oh. The last two issues have been delayed, not because we didn't have things ready to go, but because we couldn't lay hold of the paper that we used for the first four issues. So five was running a little late, and I believe six is now like at least a month and a half late. And again, we had everything on our end. We just couldn't lay hold of the paper. We did not want to publish after having such high quality paper. We did not want to publish it on cheaper quality papers. So we had to wait. The curse of high standards. You know, you guys should have been sloppy and then you could just done whatever, you know? <laughs> you should have made a mediocre magazine. It would have been great. Wait, no, actually, by definition, it would have been bad. Anyway, uh, I could talk to you for hours and get lost in far more esoteric questions that would probably um, lose some of our more casual fans. I should wrap it up. We've gone over an hour anyway. My editor, who's me, will yell at me later for having edit so much thank you so much for joining us and uh of course i've got to give you a chance here like i said i'm going to link the bejesus out of all your stuff on twitter and, and on the show notes for the episode but just to really hammer into people's brains could you please tell the people where can they find howard andrew jones and 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 what's what's your new book called again my new book is called when the goddess wakes but if you start there on the trilogy you're going to be about as lost as if you started on the turn of the king the trilogy starts with the novel the killing of kings the second one is um on the flight of the queen and the third one is when the goddess wakes and they are all now available you don't have to uh, wait for any more to come out that is it everything's wrapped up everyone who lives is going to live everyone who dies is already dead you'll find you'll find out and uh, i really hope you'll give it a try i had an awful lot of fun reading it a lot of critics think that it's pretty cool even some of my family like it so <laughs> oh that reminds me didn't didn't um didn't you have a son that did the maps for books two and three Yes, my very talented son did do this. I asked if he could do the maps, and, and I said, well, let's see him, and I showed him the maps, and I guess he can do the maps. He just graduated a year or two ago. He's making a living now as a graphic artist. Awesome. And if people just want to like kind of find you online, uh, I know you're not big on Twitter, but you are on there, right? Yeah, I, I am on there. I've never really figured out how it works. Uh, 
that sounds silly, I know, but I go on there and try and communicate to Twitter, and I feel like I'm shouting into a, shouting into a void. Anyway, so Twitter, I'm at Howard Andrew John because I couldn't get Jones. Howard Andrew. Uh, I'm on Facebook much more often. You could just search for Howard Andrew Jones for that, and it'll top, pop up. And of course, uh, my website's at howardandrewjones.com, which I update every now and then. It has pictures of my books and all sorts of writing advice. Great. Thank you, Howard. So, yeah, again, I will link to all those in the show notes, guys. Uh, you can find that quick and easy, but or you can just Google Howard's name. As you say, you will find him. Um, and, uh, yeah, again, thank you so much for joining me, Howard. This was a lot of fun. Well, I've had a real, I've had a real blast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And that was Howard Andrew Jones. All right. Join us next week when we're going to be doing the episode that would have gone up today, but then I got the opportunity to talk to Howard, so, you know, you don't sleep on that. Uh, next week will be research and how I go about it, followed by getting into new stories, the outlining of the new stories following the first one that birthed this whole project. So I'm writing a novel, features original music by Gloria Guns, and is hosted by yours truly, Oliver Brackenbury. If you'd like to submit a question, then please email it to so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com. Bonus points if you record yourself and send me an MP3 I can cut into the show. Doesn't have to be fancy, using your phone is fine, just keep it clear and concise. You can also holler at the show on Twitter. Look for at so underscore writing, at so writing. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it, leaving a review on iTunes and checking out patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. Patrons get to be thanked in the final novel, listen to episodes of the podcast a week early, and even enjoy a bonus podcast called So I Wrote a Novel, where I read and comment on chapters of previous works, starting with my first novel, Junkyard Leopard. Thanks for hanging out with me and Howard, and I'll see you soon.